Good morning. While I'm up here, I just wanted to take a brief moment and take the opportunity, while I have the microphone, to thank everybody for your support and prayers for the last three months, a few months for me. Um, my surgery was successful in February, and I couldn't have made it through without knowing that my church family was there with me. And if ever I was a doubting Thomas, who I'll read about today, um, my faith has never been so deep and so strong, and I'm just so grateful to to the good Lord for my health and um, my faith that ever grows stronger and my backbone that will be stronger than ever very soon. So thank you all, and God bless you. The scripture reading today is John 19.29. Hear the word of the Lord. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, when the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Just before Ken comes up to speak to us, uh, we should let you know that Ken is about to leave to go on sabbatical. So uh, we are privileged to hear his last sermon before he goes on his sabbatical. Uh, It's a very interesting thing the way the Lord works and brings things together. As we say, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Um, If you had said to somebody 10 years ago that we would, uh, Sutherland Church and St. Timothy's Church would be sharing a building, and not only sharing a building, but working side by side and together in ministry in the community, Uh, Most people would not have believed that. We certainly did not foresee that. But God has a habit of doing things that exceed our imagination. 
It's a testimony to the unending creativity of the God who created us and loves us. Uh, And so here we are these years later, uh, really working together with youth ministry and things like Tasting Room Theology, and Ken's been a part of uh, coming down and talking to the women at WOW on on Wednesdays, and and Ken has obviously preached many times uh, here to us. And we've been blessed by that. So we want to take a moment to, uh, to pray for him. And, uh, I mean, one of the good things that happens on these types of events is it allows us to sort of reflect for a moment and let people know that we appreciate them. And, Ken, we very much appreciate you and your impact on our congregation. On paper, you're not a part of our group. But in reality, you are. Uh, not just in the formal ways of ministry, but also getting to know so many people and families uh, he is a loved member of our congregation, although he's not officially a part of it, but you are. And uh, I want to take a minute to pray for you, so why don't you just come on up and we'll do that. Lord, we thank you uh, for this opportunity that Ken has to go on sabbatical. Uh, we're familiar with this, Lord. We, uh, we went through this ourselves as a congregation when Todd had his so recently. And we pray for Ken, as we did for Todd, that you would uh, enlarge his vision, shift his vision, whatever it is that you want to speak to him and say to him, what you want to do in his heart and in his soul, we pray that you would be free to do that during these four months. Uh, We ask, Father, that you would rejuvenate him, you would help him to learn even more about you, that he would have a clearer vision of who you are, how much you love him, and how much you love this world and give him fresh new ways to communicate that, we ask. We pray for his family. We thank you for Sonia and Lily and Ethan. We'll have an opportunity to spend more time with him. We pray that this would be a great time for the family, that you would strengthen them and bring them even closer together. We also pray for St. Timothy's Church, uh, as they will be without their head man, so to speak, uh, for a period of four months. And again, we know what that's like. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen the church and build them stronger during this time. Uh, we pray for those, and thank you for those who are going to be standing in Ken's place over the next four months to minister and to lead that group. We ask, Father, that you would protect that flock because they are indeed your flock and you love them even more than Ken loves them, and that is a great deal. So we ask, Father, that uh, you would send them out in power for these four months. And we ask this morning that you would speak powerfully through him. We ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit uh, work through the words that he has prepared. We thank you for the privilege of sitting under his ministry this morning. And we pray, Father, you bring honor and glory to your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, I want to begin, actually, by, by thanking you, thanking Sutherland Church. It's sort of your fault that I'm going on sabbatical. Um, last year when the idea of sabbatical is, is, has been sort of encouraged within our Anglican group and our bishops have all gone on sabbatical over the course of the last two years. Um, this will be my first in 27 years of ministry, uh, on the North shore. Uh, and it wasn't even really on my radar until last year when Todd, uh, announced that he was going to go on sabbatical and some of the members of your board, uh, approached members of my board and said, we'd really, Todd's going on sabbatical, we'd really like Ken to pitch in and, 
and, and have him help out a little bit, as much as little as I did last year while Todd was on sabbatical. And they said, and then when Ken goes on sabbatical next year, Todd will help. So I didn't even have to ask my congregation. They just assumed I was going on sabbatical this year. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, whether or not my family is excited to have me around more for the next four months, time will tell. It, it, it is, and you are right, James, it is, as you say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, who, who would have imagined that God would have brought two churches that are just different in the way they express their love and faith for Jesus would come together and find a friendship and a willingness to work together in ministry. But it shouldn't surprise us when you look at the disciples that Jesus drew together, the difference in, in who they were and what they did. Um, the church has... The church has long broken up the, the church year into seasons. Uh, from very early on, in the first few centuries, the, the, the church began to break up the church year, the, the calendar, into, into seasons. And in the history of the church, the first season of the year, the new year, begins with Advent. The four Sundays before, before Christmas, it's 28 days of or so of preparation for the arrival of Jesus. Then we hit the season of Christmas. And despite our cultural uh, predilections to the fact, Christmas doesn't last just one day, but the season of Christmas is actually 12 days. And it ends with Epiphany on January 6th. And Epiphany is all about the revelation of the divinity of Christ. And it is a season that is marked by the arrival of the Magi, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River when he hears the Father say, this is my beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit is sent upon him, and his first miracle at Cana, beginning his ministry uh, in, the, in the land. The next season after Epiphany, we've just completed. It's the season of Lent. And the season of Lent ra- lasts roughly 40 days plus Sunday, so it kind of adds up to 47, but 40 is a more biblical number, so they call it 40, but it's really 47 uh, math and religion don't always go hand in hand. Uh, and that begins, of course, with Ash Wednesday and ends on Good Friday that we celebrated together. The season we're now in is another 40 days, 40 days of Easter, a season which ends in accordance with Scripture with Jesus' ascension to the Father's side, the story we hear at the beginning of Acts. And 10 days after the ascension, 50 days after Easter, we have what? Pentecost, right? Penta meaning five or 50. Pentecost, it's a season of Pentecost. And these seasons, if we're honest, we, we acknowledge that they're arbitrary, but they are given to us as a gift of God to give us a rhythm in the Christian life, causing us to focus and be attentive to the important aspects of the life and ministry of Jesus, from the announcing of his coming to his birth, through his life and ministry on earth, to his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father's side, and then, beginning with Advent again, preparing for his coming again in glory. I say all this because while Easter and the celebration of the resurrection uh, was last week, we all had the flower cross, which is beautiful, and we sung all the Easter hymns, or some of them anyways, and Easter songs, The ancient church thought it was important to keep our eyes on the resurrection and the appearances of Jesus for more than just one day. The resurrection of Jesus 
along with his death a few days earlier, mark an event which undeniably changed the world and the whole of human history in a way that no other event ever has. Even if someone is doubtful of the validity of the claims made about the Easter event, even if someone says, I can't believe that someone named Jesus ever lived, I don't believe that he, he, he was crucified by the, by the Romans, I don't believe he rose again, I don't believe any of that, it is not possible to deny the impact the belief in that event has had on the world. If not the event itself, the belief in that event has radically changed the world in a way that nothing else has even come close to. And so we will spend now a second week on the resurrection. And in part because there's four gospel accounts. There's multiple accounts of his appearances. And each appearance of Jesus to the disciples gives us more information about the reason for the resurrection and for the kingdom of God. But I want to approach this account a little differently than we normally do. All good preaching is supposed to, you know, you, you start at verse 1 or whatever and you work your way down through verse 12 or, or whatever we call it, expositional preaching, and that's what you're taught at Regent. I want to reverse that and start at the end of what we read, verse 29, and we'll work our way back up. Uh, and it's for a reason. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you have your own Bible, I have no idea what page number it's on. Uh, but if you're using the blue uh, Bibles at the back, it's on page 907, and you can follow along if you want. We're going to begin by looking at the part of the story about Thomas. Now, Thomas has a nickname. What's Th- Thomas's nickname? Doubting Thomas. And why do we call him Doubting Thomas? Because he doubted. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it's not mind science here. He's called Doubting Thomas because he doubted. Because when he heard this incredible and unbelievable story about the resurrected Jesus and the empty tomb, he said, I don't believe it. I can't believe it. Someone risen from the dead, that doesn't happen. Unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I'm never going to believe this. Now, If you remember the story of Jesus walking on water in in Matthew's gospel. Is it Matthew or John? I want to say Matthew, but maybe it's John. Anyways, Jesus walking on water. Uh, And Peter actually doubts in that story. If you remember the story, Jesus is walking on water, and at first people say, oh, it's a ghost, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, no, it's not a ghost, it's really me, it's really me. All the other disciples, including Thomas, believed him. Oh, great, it's Jesus. But Peter doubts. Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you on the water. And then, needing further proof, Peter actually gets out of the boat and walks on the water for a little bit. And for some reason, we lift Peter up as this amazing man of great faith, even though Jesus in that story specifically calls him a man of little faith. But Thomas, who saw Jesus die on the cross, might might well have seen him entombed with a stone rolled in front, when he doubted the story of a dead man returning to life and walking around and telling people uh, and talking to people, when he doubted, he gets the name Doubting Thomas. I just think it's a little unfair in the way we treat these two individuals. After all, how many of us doubt? How many of you have ever doubted something in Scripture? How many of you have ever doubted something about the reality or existence of God, 
of Jesus, of the miracles, of the crucifixion, of the resurrection, of all the stories of the great children of Israel. How many of you have doubted at least once, just a little bit? Yeah, most of you, you're, you're almost as dishonest as the St. Timothy's crowd. I think all of us doubt from time to time. I know I do. The Christian faith, when we think about it after all, is incredible. It is a pretty unbelievable faith. If someone says they've never, ever doubted a lick of it, then I question whether or not one has faith. I mean, think about it. Think about what we actually believe about this God. We believe in an all-powerful triune God who created the universe and specifically created our world, not by accident or for a means to an end like most other faiths in the ancient world believed, but created it and us intentionally, purposefully, and out of love so that we could be invited into relationship with the Trinity which sits at the very center of all that is. And that creation is a divine gift of grace to us to care for and to help flourish as it sustains us. We believe in a God who, while transcendent and bigger and beyond all our understanding and imagination, is also imminent and present with us, close to us, and who desires to be in shalom with us, so, and so much so that at times he actually guides and keeps hold of history to direct us back to him. He's not a non-interventionist God who sits back and watches history unfold however it may. He actually becomes involved in human history. We believe in a God who calls people, individual people, to serve him, to serve his purpose and his mission, and the works and works with these very fallible humans who continually mess up, who continually falter, who continually lose faith, and who continually disobey. We believe in a God that after almost 2,000 years of forming a people into a nation and repeatedly enslaving them over to more powerful nations who didn't even believe in this God who created heaven and earth, finally sends himself in his son to live and dwell among us. But he doesn't send him, as the other faiths would would often believe in the ancient world of, of adult, powerful human males usually, though not always, coming down to earth, not as an influential adult, but as flesh and blood, a fetus in the womb of a poor young girl from a backwater town, almost completely invisible to the most powerful kingdom the world had ever known, a girl whose only apparent attribute was she was able to say yes. And then he spent 30 years just being normal, a normal human, working, eating, sleeping, going to church, but who one day, for whatever reason, changed, was baptized in the Jordan River by a a fellow who was a bit weird and strange and ate locusts and wild honey, and and went into the desert alone for 40 days and then began to reveal and inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth by his preaching, teaching, giving of signs and wonders and miracles, bringing salvation to the hurt, the lost, and the broken through his healings. We believe that after three years of traveling around from town to town in insignificant Israel, this God-man drew enough of a crowd to raise the concerns of the worldly powers of the Roman state and the Jewish religious leaders so that they would concern Inspire together to kill him as a traitor and a terrorist. We believe not only that, but we believe, and we believe not only that God came to earth to to live with his creation so that he could bring healing and reconciliation, but that we killed this God 
to protect ourselves and our power, an act most of us continue to repeat almost daily, at least spiritually. And that's not all we believe. We believe that after being executed by professional killers and entombed in a a cave, this God-man Jesus rose from the dead, escaped the tomb without ever actually touching the stone, and then appeared to his disciples and later hundreds of others, and that this resurrected Jesus was both the same and different from what he had been before. He was similar enough to be recognizable, but different enough to be mistaken as a gardener and a stranger on the road. He was similar enough in person, that he was able to eat bread and fish and build a fire, but different enough that he could walk into a locked room and disappear or disappear suddenly. Is it any wonder Thomas had his doubts? Is it any wonder that any of us, that all of us, have our doubts about this incredible, unbelievable story? But that's the point. That's what faith is. If it was easy to believe, if it was easy to accept, if it was just simple logic, then it wouldn't be called faith. We wouldn't need to believe in it. Faith is believing in things that are true even when they're unbelievable. So the scripture says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. This time, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus appeared among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then he walked up to Thomas. He looked Thomas in the eye. He said, Thomas, put your finger here. You see my hands? You see the nail holes? And put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. See, Thomas, like most of the disciples, believed because of what he saw. He believes because he sees. I mentioned last week when when I was preaching on the Matthew account of the resurrection, and when when the women, when Mary and the other Mary go to the tomb, in those ten verses, nine times the scripture says, see, look, behold, look, see. Again here, we have this emphasis on seeing. Thomas has seen and therefore believes. And in this case, it's he's even touching. And the seeing and touching is to demonstrate that this was not an illusion, It wasn't wishful thinking. It wasn't a hallucination. You can't touch hallucinations. But we know, too, from what Jesus has just said, that there are some people who have already begun to believe simply because they were told he is risen. The disciples had already been bearing witness to the risen Lord, even in those early days. And it is through this witnessing of others that with the exception of the the 12 and a few other scattered people, the 500 that Jesus appeared in front of, with the exception of the people who may have seen Jesus in the first 40 days before his ascension, every other single person across the history of time who has come to believe in Jesus Christ and believe in the account of the resurrection believes because of the witness of others and what they have told to them. And it has been revealed to them as belief by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thomas has now seen 
and believes. He is now ready to do what Jesus has told the rest of the disciples they are supposed to do. Their call and their vocation. To go and witness about Jesus and the kingdom of God. We know this is the vocation of believers because of what Jesus said eight days earlier. So if you move up the the gospel there a few verses, it says this. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Notice Jesus doesn't appear to them and say, Believe so you can go to heaven when you die. He doesn't say, go and tell others about me so they can go to heaven when they die. He doesn't say, go and tell others to lead good, moral lives. He doesn't say, you have to go to church regularly. Or anything like it. See, it's not just about believing in God. Though, as we saw with Thomas, believing is necessary. But belief in God, belief in the story of the resurrection, belief in Easter, belief in Jesus, is not the end goal, it's the beginning of the journey. Nor is what Jesus is saying about behaving in a certain way so that we can gain favor with God. The cross gets away from us needing to be really good little boys and girls in order to gain favor with our Heavenly Father. The disciples, all the disciples, are sent by Jesus for the same reason Jesus was sent by the Father. To reveal and announce the kingdom of God and to bring reconciliation and healing to the nations and all of creation. But notice that Jesus does not send them out without equipping them with his presence first. So just as he had promised him earlier in this gospel, when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper, a paraclete, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth from whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And just as the Father gave to Jesus at his baptism the Holy Spirit, Jesus gives to them, Jesus gives to us, the Holy Spirit. What this means, and this, some of you may find this a little jarring and uncomfortable, is we are all Pentecostals. We are all Charismatics. It says that. Jesus gives to all who believe the Holy Spirit. But it's not just about what he gave. Notice how Jesus gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember on the cross, remember back to Good Friday, Jesus is hanging on the cross And we're told that he sends his spirit back to the Father. He gives up his spirit and breathes his last. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And his breath leaves his body. But now the risen Christ breathes on them the breath of the spirit. The breath of new life. Jesus has been given back life. He's been given back the spirit. And because we are in John's gospel... We are meant to always make a connection back to the creation story. John's favorite Old Testament book is Genesis. He almost always draws on Genesis. And again, the story of breathing on the Holy Spirit, breathing on them the gift of life, 
where in Genesis do we see that idea of breathing life? Right at the very beginning, right? The story of creation. Out of the dust, out of the muck and the mire, God breathes on them the breath of life. That was the first creation when God breathed his spirit into them. And now in this new creation, he breathes his spirit into us again. And this confirms and reaffirms the creation mandate, that of relationship with the whole of creation, to love and care for all that God has made, for it is a gift of grace to us. And he has now saved it by making it new. The direction given then, the manifestation of our sentness, what it means to be sent, is relational too. We are to forgive sins. We are to reconcile. We are to restore right relationship. If we were to keep reading in John's Gospel, John chapter 21, we would witness reconciliation and forgiveness with Peter as Jesus restores him to new life and love when he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Forgiveness of sins and healing of hurt for the sake of a loving relationship leading to renewed life is for John what the cross is all about. It is what Jesus' teaching is all about. It is what all the signs and the wonders and the miracles that Jesus performed is all about. It is what all the I am statements is all about. Another way of saying this is that Jesus' incarnation, his teaching and crucifixion and resurrection, is all about the restoration of shalom, peace. Again, from earlier in this gospel, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all that I have said to you. My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Three times in the passage we read this morning, twice here and once with Thomas, Jesus says, peace be with you. On the evening of that day, the first of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. God the Father sent the Son into the world for the healing of people and the redemption of creation. Then God the Father and God the Son send the Holy Spirit into the world to equip and to be manifestly present with his disciples, both the eleven and those who will become his disciples, including you and me. Then God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit send the equipped and empowered church out into the world to be Christ's witnesses in the world and to be an extension of his ongoing presence in the world as they would help to serve as agents, as ambassadors of his kingdom and healing purposes and his goodness in all of creation. By faith in Christ and through the gift of his Holy Spirit, we are transformed into his likeness so that we, you and I, can serve as agents of transformation in the world. That's our call. That's our vocation. That's our job. It doesn't matter how old we are or how long we've been Christians or or what else it is we're going through in our lives. Our call is to be agents of transformation in the world, extending his grace 
offering his forgiveness, serving all, reconciling the divided, healing the sick, blessing the poor, caring for creation, comforting the afflicted, sheltering the poor, visiting the imprisoned, speaking for the marginalized, defending the widows, extending the circles of inclusion, practicing mercy, pursuing peace, working for justice, loving the unloved and the hated, and witnessing to the kingdom of God wherever we are. That's our job. That's why Jesus rose from the grave. That's why we have the resurrection. This is why we need his gift of peace. This is why we we require the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we need to believe even in what is unbelievable, like the resurrection, and what is incredible, like God's steadfast, unchanging love for us, even when we rebel against him, even when we fail to live out our vocation, even when we abandon his mission, for our own, and even when we fail to believe. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, My peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believe. Will you pray with me? Lord God, it is too small a thing for us to just say thank you. For us to say thank you for the cross, for us to say thank you for the tomb, for us to say thank you for the resurrection, for us to say thank you for your conquering death, for us to say thank you for your conquering of sin and the forgiveness of our sin and getting, uh, getting rid of our need for animal sacrifice for the sake of atonement. It is too small a thing for us to say thank you that you have done all you can to reconcile us to you. It is too small a thing. But Lord, we thank you. And we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. To be your hands and feet in this world. To be your voice. To both be your presence wherever we are and also to be able to see that you were already present before we ever arrived on the scene wherever we go. God, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to believe. Give us minds to understand. And Lord, give us your peace and send forth upon us, breathe on us, your Holy Spirit, so that we may live. The peace of the Lord be always with you.